Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the text, which is not announced in your liturgy, nor is the title of the message, because I did not know when I was printing these out what those two things would be. Having finished up our post-exilic prophets, concluding in Malachi, last Lord's Day, looking forward to what new season of series that God would have for us from His Word, we are now in between an opportunity for us to explore some other areas that we have not touched on in some time. And that's what I would like to do uh, as we consider God's empowered community. I was thinking back over this past year, realizing it's been the busiest year in my ministry in my life. And yet God has empowered us with grace and with His mercy, and with unity and peace, so that we could accomplish much for His name's sake. This morning I'm going to turn, first of all, in Genesis, the 11th chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 2 and consider a similar but very different passage in Acts chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 6. I do hope that... You will forgive my inconsistency as I sometimes read from the New King James and other times from the King James. I have a very deliberate reason for that, by the way. Um, Today I'm reading from the New King James, and you can ask me the reason at perhaps around lunch. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the scene of the Tower of Babel. I'm reading at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. And a tower whose top is in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do, now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Now turning to Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we have a very similar passage of Scripture, much in the reverse of what we read, and there is an analogy, in fact, a connectivity between these two. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, but everyone heard them speak in his own language. Let's pray. Father, teach us this day from the Spirit, not only to our heads, but to our hearts, the things that you would have us to behold, the things that would shape us to be more like Christ and that which would empower us to do what you've called us to do. And we pray that you would convict every one of us where we fall short of your glory, where our mind is not thinking correctly, where our actions are not deliberate and diligent in the calling that you've given us to do. Encourage us where you have worked righteousness among us and we can see the beauty of the glory of this that we see happening in the scriptures. And we pray that you would do the work that we need this day in this church and in our individual lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This year indeed has been a busy year. We look back and we consider the preparation going into something that we have never quite done before as we prepared for a Sabbath festival and through observing some of the daily offices of the church to remind ourselves that there is a rhythm to life, not only seasonally, but also daily, and that we, the church, should be about prayer. Then we went right from that into the lessons and carols where not one, but this time two services, but not just two, but one was in another community at another location with all the logistics that accompanied that. Right into the hosting of an elders' summit where this church poured out their hearts and their labor of love to serve elders that would come together to deliberate on the things of Christ and His church. Into an unusual recording project of which many of you were activated and active in and took the majority of the people of this church and we are just beginning to see some of the fruits of those things but in some ways that neither of us have ever anticipated, but far more glorious. And now the planning which has gone on for over a year is beginning to culminate and now about to host our annual presbytery with a record number of people that have energized this church, not to mention a 10th anniversary celebration thrown in the midst of it all, and a 45-rank dismantling of a pipe organ at the worst of possible times. These things could not be done without community. And a true community that Christ has established and a community that has a common purpose, but yet a community that is unified and living in peace with one another. God's community is even more about accomplishing those kind of objectives. For God's community is a family. The church herself is considered the household of faith, the house of God. In my 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have seen people come into great emotional crisis in their life, whether it be the death of a loved one, or news of some feared disease or mortal illness, or 
some battle that they go through, whatever the crisis, where there has been great emotional hurt, I have seen that that is the time when God's people are most vulnerable. And the time that God's people, when they go through that, need true community. The people who do not have true community, and what I mean by that is not merely that they're a member of a local church, because there are many people that are members of a church and perhaps maybe even live next to the church and around a lot of other church people, but the people who do not have true community, those who themselves are not involved in the life and the heart of the church community, are most vulnerable to a new trajectory in their life that sends them often on a tragic and unhealthy path. One of the reasons that Heritage Church was established here was with a very deliberate tenet to live a life of the gospel in community. Because it is so vital to our spiritual well-being, but also to our effectiveness in the world to accomplish things that will endure and to have kingdom works that build forth and bring forth fruit all over the world. I believe God is doing a great work here, accomplishing these very things of which none of us can take credit for. And this is why we place such a high importance on living close together. But the closeness comes in several forms. First of all, there is a closeness of geographic proximity. A church will not be effective as a church without living in close proximity. But secondly, there is also a closeness in the form of spiritual unity. A church will not be effective as a church if they are not spiritually unified. The greatest danger to the church's effectiveness in the world is a lack of that unity. And that is why the Apostle Paul spoke in every epistle he wrote about the dangers of disunity, whether it be in heresies or whether it be in practical relationships among God's people. And what I'd like for us to do is consider some of the aspects this morning from these two particular passages that are quite similar, but quite different in their narrative. The first one we see is the building of the Tower of Babel, where people came together in one language to build one city and one tower in the midst of it all for their one name. They were a people that unified and gathered around a common purpose, a common goal, coupled with a determination and a commitment to see the fulfillment and to achieve a great deal. In fact, we see this kind of thing happening all over the world today. We see marvelous feats and acts of people that are not Christians being able to do incredible things. We see institutions be able to come together and achieve incredible things. 
businesses, corporate structures, entities, where there is a common purpose, a common goal, coupled with determination and commitment. There's an astounding amount of power in this humanity that God has given. But what is the basis for that ability? How is it that fallen man can achieve so much? First of all, there is an internal aspect in the sense that we are made in the image of God and all of the ability and all of the strength that man has to achieve anything of any greatness all goes back to our Creator and whose image we are made. We bear that image. But in a fallen world, that image is marred and scarred. And so there is great ability, yes, but the motives and the purposes and the endeavors are ultimately against God. But there is also some other external factors involved. And yet, those external factors are not separable from even that internal factor of being made in the image of God. Because being made in the image of God means that we are made in the likeness of a Trinitarian God. A God that is one, but many. A God that is one and three. A God that is unified, but a God that has diversity. A God that is also a society. And so one of those other external factors is there was a unified purpose. And another one is there was a unified language. We come to see a great contrast and yet kind of an undoing of Babel at this great passage that we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Because God has established an even more powerful entity upon the earth, the church, which is building not just a city, but the city, and is a nation whose tower is not about themselves, but creating and establishing through the empowering work of the Spirit, a great kingdom whose name is exalted, and that name is Jesus above all of the earth. That one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord of all. Now we know that now. We bow our knee and acknowledge that now. We confess that now. But there is a right work that God is doing here on this world, in this earth, through His church, to build and grow, not merely a tower, but the kingdom of Christ. And to establish a new world the very world for which Christ came to make. What we see happening at Pentecost is inseparably connected to what Christ did on the cross at Passover. It is inseparably connected to His subsequent resurrection. And so the atoning work of Christ at Passover is directly linked to the empowerment of the church at Pentecost. God sent Christ to right the wrongs of this earth. And He saves a people with the work of Christ upon the cross. He's engrafted them into Himself and has given them the power of the resurrection to overcome every evil and every foe. 
And He has given a mission and empowered us for the mission. And that mission will be successful. Along with this redemptive work, Christ has restored the image of God in His people, making them a new creation. The image that had been marred and scarred at the fall, but not completely lost, is now being renewed in Christ after the image of that original knowledge, the original righteousness, and the original holiness that man had before he fell into sin. This renewal established by Christ at Calvary is being worked out in every believer in the Spirit, by the Spirit, and putting off the old man and putting on the new. And there is an individual aspect to our sanctification and for us being about the putting off of the old man and putting on the new man in Christ, which is renewed in this knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. Now with this restored image in man, we have the potential for achieving not only great things, but now with the right perspective, with right motives, and with righteous purpose. But additionally, in the redemptive work of Christ, He established the church. What Christ achieved on the cross is now implemented on the earth through the work of the Spirit in the church. The church then is the vehicle, it's the embodiment of this new world that Christ came to establish. And yes, the church is an institutional work of God. This notion that the church is an institution is what many modern Christians resist. And it is something in the church that needs to be reformed to its correct doctrine. The church is a living organism united to Christ. And members of the church enter into the membership of the church through baptism. A baptism which is based upon and tied to the work of Christ upon Calvary, His subsequent resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Spirit baptism and water baptism are not to be separated. They can be distinguished, yes. But not put in their own little dichotomy of a sphere without any kind of linkage, which we often are prone to do. But to be baptized into Christ is to be intrinsically linked to one another, to all the baptized persons, who at the most fundamental level have been pulled together by the virtue of the cross, by the resurrection, and by the work of the Spirit. So the visible unity of the church is not merely an institutional matter, it is a gospel matter. 
It is both. The gospel and the church are inseparable. When you believe in the gospel, that very announcement that Jesus the Messiah is the one true Lord who came to right the wrongs of this entire earth, it logically entails a belief in the community that bears His name. And the Bible presents the church as intrinsic to and inseparable from the doctrine of salvation. It's like the intrinsic connection from Passover to Pentecost. From the cross and resurrection to the pouring out of God's Spirit. From God's deliverance, His action in putting the world to right involves its heart, at its heart, God forming this unified community. But most in the evangelical world have not understood nor appreciated a corporate salvation, a corporate sanctification. But mind you, in Ephesians chapter 5, where so many people think he's just talking about husband and wife relationships, he reminds us, no, all this time I've been talking about Christ in the church. So husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. There is a corporate sense in which Christ died for the corporate body and shed His blood for the whole church of Jesus Christ. And there is a very individual and specific sense which that is applied by the Spirit to you. But these things aren't separate. One of the greatest misconceptions of the modern evangelical church is to see Christian unity as merely something extrinsic. We often deal with the doctrine of salvation in one category we call soteriology. And so we study soteriology and we study the doctrine of salvation. When we finish the doctrine of salvation and we've compartmentalized it over here, we push it to the corner, we go over here and then we study the doctrine of ecclesiology, the study of the church. And we study it in isolation from over here. And as we study the doctrine of the church and we think about her and what Christ came to do and how He's established a unity of God's people and this society upon the earth, and, and yet we put it in its compartment over here. And the problem many Christians today have is they never see the inseparable link between the two. They get through Passover week and they think Pentecost is a completely separate thing. Completely isolated an addendum, if you will. And there is a very unhealthy and flawed dichotomy that exists between the two spheres.
Stan Grintz calls this a voluntarist contractualism. And by this, what he means is it's a picture of individuals hearing the gospel and securing their identity by responding with a wholly unrestrained act of the will, a cognitive and conscious decision for Christ that endures, ensures salvation in a place in heaven, he says. Subsequently, by a quite distinct act of the will, the saved person joins a church pictured in purely visible and localized terms, a gathering of individual believers whose members are related to each other solely by their resolve to commit to Christ and to this peculiar or particular group. In its worst form, other Christians become a means to strengthening my relationship with the Lord. But the church is not an external, extrinsic entity to our salvation, nor is the body of Christ something that we're just merely volunteering ourselves to be a part of. Because unity is a gospel matter. The resistance to the institution of the church can be a way of avoiding the very painful challenge of unity. Anybody that has ever been in a particular church for any length of time knows the difficulty in maintaining unity. Particularly if you've been in a church in this country. Unity. It's not an optional matter, it's a gospel matter. And it's a challenging matter. Christ is not necessarily calling us to do something that is naturally inherent for us to do. He is not imposing upon us a regulation that we can actually achieve in the flesh. When he says, by this they will know that you're my disciples, that ye love one another, he was telling them that the love that they're going to have for one another is supernatural, grace-given, and God-adorning. And this is not something you inherently have, but something that God gives you through Christ and will be worked out in the most difficult of times with your brothers and sisters in the church. Yet through the gospel unity, we are connected to all believers. Not only here, but those across the sea. Those who have gone before us. Those who come after us. And not only do we receive from all of the others... And the gospel unity in the church of Jesus Christ... 
people that we have never met. We receive from them in this body things that we cannot articulate, but yet there's a great costly obligation of the sort that we find in Paul urging as he urges the Gentile church to take up a great collection for Jerusalem. And this great gospel unity is always going to work against a homogenous type of church. We like churches with a homogenous stripe. We have particular secondaries, which often become our primaries. But we are the homeschooling, family integrated, blah, 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 homogenized congregation. And gospel unity will always work against that. And if that's what you're about and that's why you're here, we're going to have to shift our focus and our thinking because that's not long term how heritage is ever going to endure. The beauty of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is taking a diverse group of people who have been scattered through all of the world from Babel on and bringing them back with different languages and different cultures and different backgrounds and different baggages and different challenges and different parents and bringing them into a beautiful gospel unity where there is great diversity and great challenge for us to work through those diversities to be able to live in love and unity solely rooted in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by His Spirit. And when we rally around that battle flag, we will see power the likes of which none of us have ever known. To be baptized into the church of Jesus Christ intrinsically links you to all the baptized people at the most fundamental level. It does not mean that when the water goes on, that the Spirit goes in. It does not mean that you are baptized in the church, therefore you are safe. It does not mean that you are saved. No matter if you're a Presbyterian been baptized as an infant or a Baptist like Simon who was baptized as an adult, he still had a bitter gall of bitterness in his heart. And that does not mean that if you are baptized that you are saved. But you're still in the church for whom Christ has died. And there's great obligation. And if you die in your sins apart from your union with Jesus Christ and faith in Him, you will have upon your head a greater condemnation, a greater judgment upon you on the day of judgment, and a greater eternal punishment for the rest of eternity. Because it is disdaining the very covenant relationship that God has established with His people And while you may be in an outward form bound together, there is not the heart and the familial relationship. It's like being married to a woman that you just don't love. 
And there are many people like that in the church today. It also does not mean that because you are children of believing parents and are so baptized, that that assures that you are riding in to the great kingdom of God because God has taken a wonderful thing, and it doesn't matter whose your parents are, God can save people from the uttermost parts of the world and from the many languages of Babel, and no matter who your parents are, He can give you a new home and a new family based upon solely your faith in Jesus Christ. And yet it's a warning for those who have grown up in the church and who have godly parents not to misplace their trust, but to understand there's obligations to the obedience of the gospel, as Paul would say, to live the gospel, to live it in and live it out of your life into this community of people in which God has engrafted you into the body of His Son. No matter what our differences and what our challenges or what our sins, we are obligated to love each other and to dwell with one another in peace and pursuing unity with the brethren particularly. As one writer said, without an understanding of this gospel unity, we are left with a constellation of homogeneous groups whose relatedness to each other is seen as an entirely an institutional matter. And that's predominantly how the modern evangelical church today sees themselves. Just these external, homogeneous groups kind of related to each other in an institutional matter. But the church is for most and first a community, a collection of people who belong to the one another because they belong to God in Jesus Christ. And the church exists primarily for two closely related purposes. And the first purpose we exist is to worship God. To gather here this day and to worship God. But There is another purpose for which we exist, and that is the work for His kingdom in the world. You can't just have a church home that you show up on the Lord's Day just in time for the prelude to begin, and you never darken the doors of the community life again until the following next Lord's Day when the prelude once again begins. There is a work of the kingdom and a life to be lived and a community corporate aspect to that work as well as the worship. As one writer said, you can and must worship and work for God's kingdom in private and in ways unique to yourself, yes. But if God's kingdom is to go forward rather than around and around in circles, we must work together as well as apart. And the individualism in America today is so far into the covenantal mindset of a, not only a corporate salvation, but a corporate mindedness and a corporate work. And that is why, over the course of this past year, this church has unified together, rallied around some common goals and common purposes, and why we have been able, by the grace of God, to accomplish so much. Because there has been a corporate work 
apart from community, would have never been able to accomplish. But third, the church exists in order to fellowship. To fellowship. I know some of you just perked up. Can't wait to have those people over for a cookout this afternoon and the fellowship that happens every Lord's Day with among some of our people and families here, and that is not what the Bible is talking about. It's good. That's not fellowship. We use the term as we think about families gathering together for a cookout or for coffee or for dessert, or we go and we talk about everything else, but really what true fellowship is about. The fellowship that the Scripture speaks of comes from the very same word that we get communion. From the word that means to partake of. A word that means to share in. A word that means and expresses itself in all of the one another's of Scripture. To love one another. To serve one another. To admonish one another. To minister to one another. To be hospitable one to another. This fellowship is talking about the community life and the exercising of the one another's to edify one another, to build up one another, to encourage one another, to heal one another, to strengthen one another, to sharpen one another. The church is God's institution empowered by the Spirit to grow His kingdom And at the very heart of this is corporate worship and corporate work. One of the greatest works that the Spirit does is to unify so drastically different personalities and strengths and weaknesses and problems and sins and baggages and families and cultures and languages into one body empowered by the Spirit with a great common cause and with a purpose in which all of its members are being transformed by the renewing of their minds into the image of Jesus Christ our Savior to accomplish a great and mighty work upon this earth. And that's why one of the greatest dangers to the church's effectiveness in the world is any disunity that is in her. That's why there's a great warning that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian church who was a church that was rent by schism and by practical things and by relational breakdowns and by pride and by dissension and even by heresies and doctrine, but but just in the mundane, broken relationships, and He warns them when they come to the table. The discord among the brethren, which is so foreign of what this table is about, can bring the judgment of God upon you people, He says, who have been baptized 
who have been unified with Christ and with one another, and to come with such a spirit of disunity to the table of communion with the Lord, with the oneness of His people, is such that it will bring God's judgment and chastening hand upon you that some even sleep and are dead because of it. That's a warning still today for us. So when there's discord among the brethren internally, coming to the table externally has great implications. And by the grace of God and the empowering of His Spirit, there's been a lot of good this past year. I asked a brother before the service, Jay, Do you know the magnitude and the importance of what God is doing here at Heritage? And do you appreciate it? And he says, I recognize some of it, but I confess I probably don't know it all. And I said, do you recognize how vulnerable this great work of Christ is to the work of where someone could easily destroy it? He goes, yes, I'm very well aware of that. And thankfully, he assured me of daily prayers for this church, for her unity, for me, for safety from the enemy, from this kind of discord that will destroy our effectiveness and destroy the name of God's honor among us. But I wonder if you share the same kind of thankfulness on the one hand and gravitas on the other so that we would be every single day praying, God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. The very last prayer is often, the last petition of the Lord's Prayer is often the one that is prayed the least. But it is not last because it is least. Folks, God is doing a great and wonderful work here. And He's doing it through you. But let us not stand on the victory of today's accomplishment at Jericho and so quickly in our flesh run to Ai in our own strength only to know defeat tomorrow for the whole community. Today we stand... Strong, as we are unified in the gospel, but we stand fragile for the potential of discord. But we must remember that unity in the church is not optional. It is a gospel matter, not merely an institutional matter. And we are obligated as a people of God, as individuals, to seek peace with all people to love one another and to suffer long and to forgive. And yet the closer we work together, the more our sins are exposed. But yet it's the same old sin that's been there all along. You and I just see it because we now have opportunity because we live close together in community.
I remember when we were moving here to establish a covenant community of people where we live close together, a pastor told me in our denomination, you will have to have an extra measure of God's grace upon you and your church when you live close together to make sure that there is very quick conflict resolution. And if you ponder with me for just a moment what His greatest warning was to us in coming together to live as a close-knit church in a covenant community is the very matter over which the gospel should be evident in this congregation. Let me put it another way. It is easy to go and be a part of a commuter church or a very large mega church where your name is not known from Lord's Day to Lord's Day or only within a small group of people within that congregation. And you can travel, but you don't have to live life too closely, only at your comfortable distance and only on your terms. And it's easier to live that kind of life in that kind of comfort zone than to come together and live life like the church is supposed to live. Now, which is the better model? I'm not asking you which is the easier model. I'm asking you which is the more effective, the more powerful, the more gospel-adorning the more Christ-honoring is when we come together and we see our warts and we work through our sins and we resolve those conflicts biblically and we get through those trials and we are stronger and better and more effective for it. And I commend you people by the grace of God for what you have allowed the Spirit to do in and through you in this past decade. But I am not standing on the laurels of achievements of men. We are not celebrating too much the, the, the defeat of Jericho. We're going to get down on our knees and we're going to pray for the little city of Ai that we now go to, who we should just defeat in an instant, but because it must always be done with the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, and the power of God, and not in the ingenuity of human flesh, we must rely upon God to win the victory. We do not stand today on the laurels of our victory in order to ensure us the victory for the next battle. Do you see the delicate balance I am trying to ride on the knife edge here? Yes, God has done wonderful things through us, And yet we are so vulnerable and we're fragile because we need to get down on our knees once again and pray that God would save us from our sins, protect us from the evil one, empower us for the work He's given us to do, and give us a joyful time of worship every Lord's Day when we come together around the table in unity. Gospel unity is not an option to the Christian life. So if there's anyone among us today who has some vindictive spirit, some spirit of hatred, a spirit of dislike of another person here, 
a spirit of envy or a spirit of unforgiving, unforgiveness, a spirit of blaming others, a spirit of disrespect or a spirit of contention or a spirit of distruthfulness, some spirit of disunity in their heart. I call you to repent of this gospel infraction and turn around to Christ and His gospel peace this day. There is a bigger work at stake than our personal feelings. There is a grander cause to be about than our personal vindications. This is a holy work, a glorious work, a gospel work. So this day, this morning, let's come to this table with a new resolve not to allow the enemy to get a foothold in the door of our lives or hearts. And let's be renewed with a sense of unity and divine purpose in life because we are knit together in Christ and we're not just building some city back in the ancient times. This is a heavenly city of which God has engrafted us to be a part of a glorious city, the New Jerusalem, and we're a part of the narrative now of that glorious time. And we come gathered together with the church glorious and victorious before our Lord as we now eat of his meal that we call fellowship. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church for whom he died and for engrafting us into Christ and for having us to be a part of this glorious body through baptism and we're thankful for the faith that you've given to us in the finished work of Christ and for the work you have given to us to do corporately and individually. We're thankful that we can be gathered together in worship this day and hearing of the truth to refresh us of our mission, refresh us of our character, refresh us of who our great God is and refresh us of the society and the Trinity into which you have placed us. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would take and register these truths into our hearts and upon our minds to bring forth the spiritual fruit that would please you and that you would empower this church to do things that we cannot even imagine can be done. Not for our namesake, not for our city, nor for our great tower but for your name's sake and yours alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.